Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project podcast is one about the relationships that we have with our bodies. Today, I got to interview someone who we should all know on the internet. Uh, his name is Mason Meninga. Mason is an aspiring theologian, podcaster, YouTuber, and the internet's youth pastor. He had so much to say when it comes to our bodies and theology, looking at our bodies through a theological lens. And we talked a lot about how in uh, at least our experiences and so many people that I've talked to at least, uh, our experiences talking about the body in Christian culture growing up has always been that the body is bad, that there's this kind of like dualism between the mind and the body or the spirit and the body and how it's just really confusing and really toxic. And we address that and we talk about how actually the body and the mind are one and there really is no one without the other. Uh, we talked a lot about that. We went into purity culture. Mason was really generous in giving us his uh, perspective and experience as growing up as a straight white male in the purity culture movement and what that did and how that affected him and how kind of realizing the faults and the wrongness of that was what led him to discover discover more of what was true and discover more of what he believes and what he cares about and loves and just just the it exposed a lot of the toxicities in religion and I had a lot of a lot to say about that as that's something that has been a big part of my story but anyway we talked a lot about that kind of thing and I had a blast so go check it out listen and then make sure to check out Mason's stuff at the end I was really into reading all that and doing some deep dive and research on what he has to say before starting the interview and I can tell you it's really cool so yeah enjoy Mason, how is it going up in Minneapolis? That was a great start. <laughs> I'm doing well, Jackie. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, usually people say my last name wrong, but it's great to know that sometimes people mispronounce Minneapolis as well. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm happy to be unique when it comes to the mis mispronunciation. Let me, let me give your last name a shot. Is it Menenga? Oh, that's like the most common mispronunciation. It's Menenga. Oh, Menenga. Okay. In my defense, every time I've ever heard you talked about, it was Menenga. So that's, I blame them. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, it is. It is widely mispronounced and that's okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, okay. at least as, as you know, you, I guess you could have come up with a new unique mispronunciation, uh, but you kind of went the more typical route, which is fine. Okay, well, I'll get creative and I'll tell you next next time we do a podcast, I'll come up with a new way to, to say your I, name. I would love to hear what other mispronunciations are out there. Okay, that's perfect. Well, Mason, thank you so much for joining us on the Unity Project today. I'm stoked as I was telling you right before uh, hopping on the, well, I guess, press and record, uh, you talk a lot about in your work um, topics and stuff that, or you bridge a lot of gaps that I didn't know mm. language for to be bridged, mm -hmm. like the body and theology is the big thing that 
I guess you were talking about in the work that you sent. And I can't wait to get into that because I know my background and so many people that I've talked to on here's background, uh, and you even mentioned it a bit in your work, but just how the body is seen as this evil thing in mm -hmm. Christianity a lot of the time. And so I can't wait to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited to talk uh, all about this. I mean, it really, if there's kind of one defining, unifying thing, if you will, uh, of the work that I'm up to. It really is this intersection of embodiment and theology. So I'm really excited to chat a little bit more about it with you. Oh gosh, well then that's, that's perfect. Do you mind, before we jump in, to just kind of give everyone a heads up about uh, what it is that you do? Yeah. So... There's lots of things I do, one of which is I work for a seminary called United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, hence why I live in Minneapolis. And so that's one of the things I do. I also am a student at the seminary, so I just finished up my classes uh, of, so all the courses that I had to do, I finished all of those up, and now I'm working on my thesis, uh, which will have to be, or uh, which I'll be writing about embodiment and theology. Uh, and we can jump into that a little bit more too, if you'd like. So I'm doing that as well. I'm a student on top of working at, in admissions. And then I also have my own podcast called The People's Theology. And a lot of the topics, uh, I think in a lot of ways, kind of touch on at the very least on embodiment. And so I talk with people about all the inspiring and liberating theology that they're up to in the world. And so uh, the, I interview folks for, for that, just like you do with this podcast. So uh, yeah, I, I podcast, I work for a seminary and I'm also a seminary student. And I also recently within this last year started doing YouTube videos. I have kind of taken a little bit of a hiatus of that just because I was in the midst of the entire semester uh, that was getting <laughs> a little burdensome, but I'll be done with that now. Uh, now that we'll, be just working on my thesis. So hopefully I'll be getting back making some YouTube videos. So I'm really excited about that as well. Oh, that is awesome. I used to make YouTube videos for like I think I did it for like six or seven years. Wow, you were a trooper. I was a trooper for that saying something. It takes a lot of work to make a video. It takes oh, yeah. so much more work than a podcast. Like I'll make these five minute videos. They at least take twice, if not three times longer than to record, edit, and put out a podcast. They just take so long to make. So oh, yeah. if you're doing that for six straight years, man, that is, that is some real work that you were doing. Oh my gosh, I appreciate I appreciate you saying that because I never really understood like how because I would try and do like a video a week for the longest time. Oh my goodness, it, a week! Holy cow, that is yeah. that's a full time job right there, Jackie. It for sure was a full time job. I'm really grateful for it because it kind of gave me, which you're probably I'm assuming finding out as well through that and through all the other creative stuff you're doing, but it gave me like a voice for what I care about. Yeah. And, yeah, it was fun. And YouTube's crazy. I have to go watch your videos. I've seen you post some on Instagram. And so mm -hmm. I definitely will have to check them out. But you are definitely right when you say it's a lot of work to film and edit and post and get people to actually watch it and be like, yeah. please care about what I have to say. I know. So, yeah, but no, that that is awesome. Well, Mason, to get started, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everyone to start these conversations is to describe the relationship that you have with your body. Oh, man, is it complicated and complex. <laughs> so I grew up in purity culture, which I don't know if all of your guests have 
grown up in that or if that's kind of a dominant theme or not. Yeah. But I grew up in purity culture, which as like a, a straight white man, I have like a very kind of different maybe perspective than like if I was a woman or a non-binary person or a person of color. Um, and so, yeah, I have like kind of this interesting because purity culture was created by the kind of person I am, right? Mm. It was created by straight white men. And so my kind of experience in it was um, very complicated because I knew that it was a culture that was meant to benefit me and my body. And yet it still was super dehumanizing to my body and to me. So I start out with that because that's kind of my first introduction to my relationship with my body is that I was meant to really despise it. I was meant to subdue it and subjugate it because the things of my body were the things of evil and Satan um, as they would have coined it. So that was my first introduction to my relationship with my body. But then as I started to kind of explore, especially when it came to my body and sexuality, I really, and this would have been maybe around high school for context, it was around that time that I started to develop kind of a new relationship with my body. And it really, in a lot of ways, was really liberating. And it just kind of set the, planted the seeds for me to eventually get to the point where I really understood now the body to be an integral piece of all of our experience, including our spiritualities. And so, yeah, I kind of have moved from hating my body growing up in purity culture to kind of getting to this point where I'm like, ah, I'm not really sure what to do with the way my body's feeling, but I know there might be a different way for me to think about my body to now where I've gotten to the point where I think our bodies are integral to our experiences in the world. And I'm really curious about the way, the ways that our bodies do shape our experiences in the world. And for me in particular, I'm interested in how it shapes our theologies and our spiritualities. So all that's to say, it's been a very complex relationship uh, from the time that I was born to now. Um, but I have grown over these years to really appreciate my body to the point where it's now central to the ways that I think about the world. Wow. Thank you for giving such a, a helpful overview of what your experience has been like. I have so many questions for so many different <laughs> areas of it. Well, first, tell me a bit more about uh, your experience with purity culture, because, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head there about, like, yeah. uh, you have a very different experience than most of the people I've talked with about it. And, I mean, given from the, the female's perspective, well, actually, just tell me your tell me your experience. What was that like as a straight white kid, a straight white man growing up? Yeah, it was so interesting because in a lot of ways, it really, again, was meant to dehumanize my body or really in a lot of ways, just disembody me from my body. And, and yet in this weird, I don't like, I still am not 100% sure like how that disembodiment for me was meant to be be beneficial to me other than the fact that it was a 
ultimately meant to subjugate people of color and women and others. Um, and so, yeah, like that was the interesting experience of it. Kind of looking back, obviously, at it now, I wasn't thinking this when I was in the midst of it all. <laughs> but kind of looking back at it, it was such an interesting experience because I was growing to really, really hate my body, especially how uh, my sexuality was involved with my body. And yet, even in the midst of that hatred of my body, it was meant to benefit me. And I don't know, there was this complexity there that was really hard for me to, um, it was hard for me to really gain a grasp of. And it wasn't until, again, like I mentioned before, that I really started exploring my own sexuality that I really start, started to understand how important my body was and started to really gain appreciation of it. And yet there was still like a lot of complexity with that. It was around that time that I started, uh, well, I was a college athlete and so I was doing a lot of like working out stuff and because I was surrounded by others who had these like incredible bodies. Then I started to experience this disassociation with my own body, especially when it came to its appearance. So there was this weird thing in purity culture that I was experiencing of, even though your body was not meant to be objectified, your body was not meant to be objectified, an object, because I saw all of these other really good looking bodies and I wanted it, I wanted my own body to be an object. And so I started to, you know, diet in a certain way and working out in a certain way that actually really developed an unhealthy relationship with my own body. And so, yeah, there was just all these like complexities of me really hating my body and it all spawned back to purity culture, yet at the same time, in some way, shape, or form, I was being convinced that, or, or I was given the illusion, at least, that that was all meant to be beneficial to me as a man. So, yeah, there was just all this really interesting complexity to it, because what I was told, or what I was kind of promised in purity culture, what I, as a straight white man, was promised in purity culture was not what I was actually experiencing. And that is where I think I started to start to feel some sort of like discontent and disassociation with purity culture, where I felt then I was kind of free to now explore a little bit more about what I truly love about my body to the and to eventually get to the point where I actually started to love my body. Mm. Okay, okay. All of this makes sense and is very relatable in a in a different way for me. But um tell me like what are what were the messages that you received from purity culture from the male's point of view that promised you something good? Like what what did you feel like you had to do and to be? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it would have been all that much different than what people of other genders were experiencing, but for me in particular, I was constantly being told that if I remain pure, then not only would God be pleased, but I will, it, like, especially if the person who I would remain pure for, that that would somehow make that relationship magical. That it would be, again, like, I would be given that kind of promise of the perfect relationship with the perfect woman. And, and yeah, and what I ended up 
experiencing really kind of in real time was that just wasn't the case. Like all the people that I was, you know, trying to remain pure for and I thought were maybe the one or whatever, although I was like 16 years old or 17 years old, like <laughs> none of that was happening. And I really started to experience that disassociation. Um, and I also was constantly told impurity culture that if I waited for sex that the the person who I waited for sex for would not only they appreciate it but also that I wouldn't feel guilt about waiting for sex like there was something about like that by waiting for it you would be fulfilling the promise that uh, was given to you and what I ended up later on experiencing when I did like first started having uh, sexual activity was that like, that wasn't the case. I wasn't feeling guilty. I was constantly told that I would feel guilty if I didn't wait. And then I actually didn't wait and I didn't feel guilty. And so there was that weird disassociation too, where what I was told would, what I was told about being feeling guilty by not waiting actually didn't happen. And that really kind of spun me into like, why is that? I wasn't, I wasn't going to settle for just not feeling guilty. I really wanted to know why. And that's kind of what spiraled me into trying to really wrestle with my own faith about, is this idea around purity culture really what it's chalked up to be uh, theologically. And so even as like a 17 and 18 year, 18 year old, I started diving down into sort of this like theology of purity culture and why I was experiencing what I was experiencing in, in the real world and why that was so disconnected with what I was being told about purity culture growing up. Oh, wow. Okay. Tell me, tell me about that. Like kind of you pulling apart purity culture. Was that kind of the way or actually when I was reading your uh, some of your work, you talked about how your body kind of like you experienced doubts of your religion in your body, and that kind mm -hmm. of resulted in I have your quote written down here. Let me look at it really quick because it really got my attention. You said my body genuinely experienced these doubts and the change that had happened after I had embraced the doubts. Mm -hmm. Were you talking about something like this, or is that completely different? Yeah, I mean, it all kind of was one. Not only was I experiencing these doubts in my body about sexuality and purity culture, but I was also at the same time starting to experience doubts about the marriage of Christianity and conservative politics mm -hmm. and the, 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 uh, anti -ho or the, the homophobia of Christianity and just like all of those things that, you know, people start to kind of wrestle through in their faith, especially as they're leaving evangelicalism, all yeah. of those things started coming to a front, but it was happening in my body. I was really experiencing all of those doubts viscerally. And that is where I really started to kind of be curious about why is it that my body in particular seems to be central in how I'm experiencing these changings in my theology and spirituality. Mm, 
Okay, what did this feel like in your body? I've never heard anyone say that before, and I feel like it's really important for us to kind of just highlight that to bring awareness to the fact that like our bodies might know before we even know that something isn't right. Like, what did what was that experience like? Yeah, it felt like a roller coaster in a lot of ways. You know, when you're experiencing those doubts and you start to become scared that you're going to be not only losing your faith, but losing your community, you start to experience anxiety in your body. Um, I remember at some points I was experiencing depression within my body because I would start to get in like arguments with people who I love because of the changing that was happening for me theologically and politically. And then also at the same time, when I was able to sort of free myself from these really toxic beliefs, those moments were like elation. They were joyful. And so those were kind of the ups in the roller coaster. And then you, yeah, again, I would experience these downs with anxiety and depression. And so it was all happening at once. And that was, yeah, that's why it was like such a roller coaster for such a short period of time. Um, eventually I kind of got to a point where I became really comfortable with where my faith was headed, where my theology was headed, where my politics were headed. And there was less of that roller coaster. But within those first couple of years of me really starting to kind of unravel some of these beliefs, uh, yeah, my body was really experiencing this roller coaster of emotions, both the highs of the quote unquote deconstruction and the lows of that quote unquote deconstruction. Okay, yeah, that that definitely makes sense. What so going back to what you said just a second ago about how you started to kind of um try to untangle purity culture and look theologically into why you didn't feel guilty. I love that cuz that I mean Wait, real quick, what's your Enneagram number? <laughs> I was about to say, you're going to bring that up, are you? Totally. So, I, I am a four, but I do have a what I would believe to be a pretty strong five wing. So, there was, there was this like, yeah, I was definitely the investigator when it came to why I was experiencing the things I was experiencing in my body. It wasn't going to just settle with the fact that... I was experiencing them. I really wanted to know why. Uh, and so, yeah, there's definitely that investigator side of me that really came out during that moment in my life. Oh man. Yeah. That, that's so relatable. Cause when I kind of hit my point of the like, Oh my gosh, what is real? What's not? I went, I'm a seven and sevens go to five in integration, mm -hmm, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I went like super into the like, okay, I need to know every fact, every theological statement and opinion anyone's ever had about this yep. and why. And it is, it's just really, I love looking at things that way. I get like really just obsessive about the research. And so I, I liked how you said that. What did you find out? Like, what did you kind of look into and what did that process look like? Well, again, at the time, I was really operating under evangelical frameworks of thinking about things. And so because of that, I still remember like literally going on Google after school some days and typing in like, what does the Bible say about oral sex? Or what does the Bible say about pornography and et cetera, et cetera. So because I was coming out of evangelicalism, I was still really under this assumption that the Bible has the ultimate authority in all of this theology. And what I ended up finding out during all that time was that the Bible really didn't say much about these things. And if it did, it was really complex and complicated. And so that really 
created kind of this, again, this dissonance or this disassociation with my own faith because I was told growing up that it was very clear. In fact, I, ha- I was one of those kids that read my entire Bible all the way through, had done it multiple times. And for whatever reason, none of those verses really hit me until I really started putting them in the context around me really wrestling with my faith around, especially around sexuality. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I ended up kind of finding out that really the Bible doesn't say all that much about these things. And if it does, it's really complex, uh, much more than, much more complex than I had grown up believing and then I ended up this was right around the time that I was going to college so then I started college and I was a religion and youth ministry major so and without having any idea that any of this would end up happening I started reading all of these books from a lot you know pretty popular progressive Christian people like Nadia Boltzweber and Rachel Held Evans and and Rob Bell and others and that's when I really started to get a sense, oh, the kind of Christianity they're talking about seems to allow for me to experience the things that I'm experiencing in my body. And that was a really game changer for me because for the longest time, it felt like maybe I would have to leave Christianity for me to embrace the body, my body in the ways that I'm wanting to. Yeah. And it wasn't until I started to encounter folks like Rob Bell and Nadia Boltz-Weber, and, and since there have been many others, but it wasn't until I started encountering some of their stuff that I realized, oh, I can still care about Christianity and that can be an important part of my life and embrace my body as well. So that was a really important moment when I started to encounter some of those folks. Okay. Okay. I love that. The whole thing where you don't have to pick one or the other. I had a a similar experience with that when originally my my sister came out and I was trying to, Mm -hmm. because I hadn't come out yet. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to figure out like, I'd been told my whole life, which I'm sure you and honestly, everyone listening to this probably knows, (laughs) like being gay is a sin and wrong. And there's no like... Like, you can't be queer and Christian. It doesn't go together. And so, mm-hmm. I had just, that was just in my mind is just the way that it was. And then, once something happened that made me want to look further into that, that's when things started to unravel of what I knew to be true. Like, the things in the Bible, or the verses they call them the clobber passages that talk mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. how and why that's, quote, wrong. And then, reading about how actually this is what those verses mean. And maybe we don't know because they were in Hebrew and a lot of the words aren't translatable and things like that. And so that's Mm -hmm. kind of what led me to look more into the people that you're talking about and Mm -hmm. to see Mm -hmm. that like, Oh, both of those things can exist without conflict. Like you Mm -hmm. can be queer and Christian and here's why and the gray area and we don't know all the answers and Mm -hmm. all the things. So I love, I love that. I think that that's such an important part of anyone's story involving uh, deconstruction or reconstruction or whatever Mm -hmm. it is that you Mm want to call it. Mm -hmm. Was that hard for you? Like growing up with such a strong, um, a strong, I guess, uh, religion from what it sounds like, like, did, was there kind of like a grieving process or like a difficulty with like what I grew up knowing to be true is maybe not true. Like, what did that look like? Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of nights where I would fall asleep crying because of, yeah, this feeling of unraveling that all of the things that I was told to be true weren't. 
And that's a really hard thing to kind of stomach after a while. And on add on top of that, but when you start to become a little bit more public about what you believe, because, you know, again, at the time, you know, to, to find things about like why, you know, being gay isn't a sin. Like when I started to discover those kinds of theologies, I was excited about it. I'm like, oh my goodness, like this is a different way to think about Christianity. And I loved it. And then to start to share that with people like my parents, for example, and to be met with hostility was really, really difficult. And so there were a lot of sleepless nights of not only just the the pain of going through doubt, but also add on top of that, but it felt like you're, you're losing a community by actually embracing some of those doubts. And that was a really difficult part of the process. However, at, what, at a certain point, I don't know exactly when it was, maybe within a few years, that kind of part of it really did end for me. Um, I get messages all the time from folks that are maybe in that moment of, of season of doubt, if you will, uh, where it's kind of all new to them. They're starting to lose community and they're starting to just simply experience the pain of doubt. And I always tell them, you just have to push through. It's not going to get easier uh, in terms of that moment, but at some point you'll start to figure out how to relate not only to your own faith, but to figure out what kind of boundaries and relationships you need um, or how, how you navigate those relationships moving forward. And so, yeah, it was a really a tough thing for a while, but then it eventually did. And there was kind of this end point where I wasn't experiencing that same pain uh, anymore. Mm. Okay, that that's wonderful. And that's honestly the perfect advice, just telling them to push through it. Because from my experience, it was like, kind of like you're just like running through this desert. And then all of a sudden you feel like, oh, there's other people out here. You just have mm -hmm. to look for them. Like yeah. you're shoved to the outside and then you find all the other outsiders. And then you realize they're yeah. not outsiders. They're just more people who think the same yeah. new things that you do. And yeah. that's awesome. I mean, I grew up thinking that Joel Olstein was a liberal Christian, right? Like that's how oh, insulated <laughs> I was. And again, it wasn't until I got to college and I started reading folks like Nadia Boltzweber and Rachel Held Evans and, and Rob Bell. And I was like, well, okay, at least there's like three others that think about yeah. Christianity this way. Right. <laughs> and it wasn't oh, yeah. until I started, you know, even going further in the Google related search bar and finding them on Twitter. I'm like, okay, well there's maybe more than just three. And that was a really, really freeing moment when I realized, okay, I'm not the only one. And that was a significant moment that helped me get, get that got me through that really intense pain of, of that doubt that doubting season, if you will. Oh, yeah. I think that, um, I mean, just, just considering like relationship in general and how important that is to, to our, honestly, just our survival as a person, like knowing that there's someone else out there who feels how you feels the same as you feel or who knows you feel a certain way and mm -hmm. is still accepting of you, like that kind of sets you up to, explore more and to safely like dive into okay so I'm okay I have loved and accepted in some kind of way so now I can like do some digging and figure it out and mm -hmm. kind of have room to explore and have room to mess up and have room to doubt and question and it's a really good place to be yeah absolutely I totally agree yeah, yeah so tell me more about um your thesis where you're talking about uh the theology of or what do you 
think bodies steal a lot. Mm. I think I'm reading the topic wrong. Thinking about the body theologically. Am yeah. I saying that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I think that's exactly how I would phrase it. Or or to say how, how ought our theology be shaped by our bodies is maybe kind of more specifically what I'm going to be getting at uh, within my thesis. Okay, yeah. Tell me more about that because I think that that is so it's just a really important point to like get out there in the world to combat all the very opposite ones yeah well so let me kind of start kind of more generally or abstractly and then i'll kind of get to a specific example that you sort of brought up just a little bit ago so what i'm really interested in is given all that we've been talking about with our bodies and how central they are to our experiences i'm really interested in if all of that's true then how should our bodies shape our theologies and spiritualities? And that's what I'm really curious about, especially given, you know, you probably might be aware of this, but given all of the conversation that's happening about embodiment right now, I mean, that one of the best books or the best selling books of the last few years has been The Body Keeps the Score. There's yes. also a great book called My Grandmother's Hands, which is specifically about racial trauma in the bodies. And so there's a lot of books coming out right now about embodiment, specifically about how like trauma is embodied. And so we're just really, from a science perspective, we're really learning a lot about our bodies over these last few years. And I think a lot of people are really interested in it. And so what I'm really hoping to add is what can all of what we're learning about our bodies within these last several years, what can that add to how we think about theology? In other words, how does that shape what knowing what we know about our bodies now, how does that shape our theology. So that's what I'm really curious uh, in my thesis and I'll be writing about. And so kind of to maybe put a little like kind of an example on that. You mentioned before about how in your own journey after your sibling came out, you started wrestling not only with like those clobber passages. So you kind of initially started thinking, okay, uh, you know, I, I'm moving from thinking that homosexuality is a sin to, well, maybe there's uh, like a defense of homosexuality in the Bible and in Christianity. Like maybe there's a way to think about the Christian faith that uh, is at least allows for homosexuality, right? So you kind of start to move in that direction, right? What mm -hmm. I'm really curious about is not sort of this like defense of the body or defense of like homosexuality in the Christian faith. What I'm really interested in is moving beyond that and getting to the point of how does something like, for example, how does queerness actually inform our faith? In other words, how does queerness or how should queerness actually shape our theology? Just in the same way, how does our, you know, I'm not interested in making a defense of the body in Christian faith. What I'm really interested in is that's all a given. And I want to move beyond that and make an argument that our bodies ought to shape our theologies in specific ways. And mm -hmm. that is, to me, kind of the next step beyond that. And that's what I'm really interested in. Just in the same way that I think a lot of people are not necessarily interested anymore of just defending homosexuality and, and Christianity. They're actually now getting to that next step of really being interested in what does queerness actually offer Christianity and can teach and shape Christianity? That's kind of the type of question I'm really wanting to ask about specifically about the body. 
Oh, wow. I am so, so into this topic. I remember a little while ago, well, honestly, like years ago, being so frustrated that that was the main conversation about queerness and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with anything Christian was about if it was right or wrong. And I'm like, can we just move past that to like, there's got to be more to this and more just goodness to be talked about. And I love how that is the next kind of the next step and the next question. What would you say, I guess, if someone were to ask you that question? How the, how our bodies shape our, our theology? Or no, like uh, what you talked about, what queerness can teach us oh. about theology. Yeah, specifically that. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of it is based in queer studies. And, and for, for those who um, don't know, like queer studies really um, is taking a look at not just like, you know, who is one sleeping with? That's not really the interest <laughs> of what queer studies, but they're really interested in kind of queer queerness as kind of a, a way of being in the world. Right. Yeah. And so in, in a lot of queer studies, especially for those who integrate that with theology, a lot of them talk about how queerness really is this um, is what it's attempting to do is like violating any normativity. It's trying to become very ambiguous and allow for uh, kind of a, a catchphrase around these days, but, but like uh, really creates these liminal spaces, right? And so queerness is really trying to create ambiguity and, um, and define any normativity and, and trying to defy kind of all the binaries that we create in the world of what's right and wrong and black and white, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of folks who are interested in integrating that in theology are interested then in, you know, let, let's take, for example, the, the, uh, um, the binary of Jesus being fully human and fully divine, right? So here's, here's a classic doctrine that people, a lot of Christians believe that God, that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And what queerness is really interested in is kind of defying any of that binary of, uh, of Jesus being fully divine and fully human and, and even just kind of Def- violating that even if you will uh, or uh, kind of connecting with the body Qu- a lot of like queer theology would be interested in um, d- kind of define the binary that we create between the spirit and the body right and so a lot of Christianity is predicated on the body being bad and the spirit being good and mm-hmm. queer queer theology would really try to rupture that binary. And so, yeah, I think those are some of the ways in which that queerness really has a, has a lot to teach Christian theology in particular. Mm, Okay. Yeah, that, that is really, really great. I think I remember talking with someone, I think it was Matthias about how, um, just how when it comes to like the person of Jesus and how he was always pushing the boundaries and always mm-hmm. making like re-questioning the rules and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. honestly taking rules away and just basically saying, hey, there's like, there's actually way more out there than you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking about that from like a queer perspective and also just thinking about like just what sexuality is in general, what gender is in general and what like all these ways that we as human beings have 
define what it means to be a person. And then I love what you actually talk about in your the chapter that you sent me, uh, which was how we kind of see or a big way that we see God is through human characteristics. Like mm. God is everywhere, but also we talk about God as um, like being in this one spot, doing this one thing. Mm-hmm. The only way we know how to understand it, which is like as if God was a person mm-hmm. walking around. And when you think about it, like how could that just be the way that it is? How could there just be male and female and males are with females and there's no other way that's like, it should go. And I don't know. I just feel like um, that's very boxed in. And I know mm-hmm. that that's, mm-hmm. that's like an understatement and said so many times, but I love, I just love the idea of queerness being like the gray area and the mm-hmm. area of like mm-hmm. challenging the norms that honestly Jesus challenged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's super cool. Um, very, very cool. So later on in your in your chapter, you talk a little bit about kind of the complicated relationship that religion has had with the body. And I think mm-hmm. you just touched on that a bit with mm-hmm. like the body being bad and it being confusing because Jesus came down and he had mm-hmm. a body um, according to the Christian faith and that would make the body good, right? Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. you go on to talk about how but actually, this is why the body's not good. And all the reasons why a lot of people have uh, childhood trauma about hating their bodies and hating themselves. Things like what you were talking about with dissociating from your body because mm-hmm. your body's the root of evil. I'm going off a tangent right now. <laughs> but I guess, like, do you want to kind of talk about why... Or how to kind of come onto the other side of that? You talked a little about, like, emergence in your... Oh, yeah. In your chapter, yeah. and just about how religion is making meaning, and meaning is bodily, like that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, th- this is one of, just kind of a side note, one of the things that I really am interested, especially when I start to write my thesis, is that I want my thesis to be something that is applicable to anyone regardless of their tradition, religious tradition, or even if they don't have a religious tradition. I obviously am coming from a Christian perspective, and I think Christianity does have a lot to offer a theology of embodiment. However, I don't think Christianity is the only way to think about a theology of embodiment. So, I do kind of want to add that disclaimer as I talk a little bit about this. But I think kind of more, if you will, universally around a theology of embodiment or how we can start to think about our bodies being good is, yeah, this idea of emergence. And the idea of emergence is actually something um, that is coming from the science community. And essentially the idea of emergence is that when a bunch of things kind of come together, they actually create something new altogether. So, for example, when a bunch of particles come together, they don't just make one huge particle. They actually make something new, like an atom, which is actually functioning and doing something slightly different than if you just put a bunch of particles together and they just make one big blob of particles, right? So, what the idea of emergence tries to explain is why is it that when a bunch of things that are similar come together, they end up creating something new altogether, right? And I think this is a really important 
and helpful idea as we think about why our bodies are important and are good. Uh, especially when it comes to our spiritualities is because what it does is it totally dismantles this dualism between our bodies and our mind. Okay. So our, our bodies and our mind really are predicated on this idea that uh, they're two separate things and they have nothing to do with one another. But the idea of emergence complicates that by saying that actually these two things are working together. And in fact, our one thing really ultimately there really is not this distinguish uh or this distinction distinction between our bodies and our mind and they actually come together and create something entirely different or something entirely new uh which is uh at least for us as humans when our bodies and mind come together they actually create the what we why i would consider like the human experience and this is why i think the bodies are the why the body is so important because it breaks down that dualism between the body and the mind which often means that the body is bad and the mind is good so i think that idea of emergence is really important as we think about why it is that our bodies are really central to the way that we experience the world Mm. Okay, so you're kind of saying like you can't have one without the other type of thing. Like, yeah, our bodies and our mind just go together, and they're in the end like one. That that's really it. Sounds simple, but that's like so yeah. good. Yeah. Well, for for example, and I I don't think I included this in the paper that you were reading because it just came out recently. But there was this article that I read that essentially what researchers have found recently is that when people work together. Uh, and this could be us right now, Jackie, but when people work together, our brain frequencies start to match up. So this certainly could be happening between us just because we're in conversation and we're working together on this thing, on this interview. And so when people are working together, science, scientists have found that our brain frequencies match up. And the reason why I think this connects to this idea of emergence is what it does is it complicates this idea that we're just two separate minds having two different experience, conscious experiences when rather because our brain frequencies are actually seeking, syncing up, we're actually two people having one collective experience, conscious experience. Mm-hmm. And really, ultimately, and I, I know that we're only doing this virtually, but especially if we were in person, those brain frequencies are really predicated on our embodied experiences and working together in person, in body, right? And so, mm-hmm. what, so kind of my conclusion to that is if our embodied actions in the world with one another matter so much that we actually end up becoming one collective conscious experience or we're having one collective conscious experience because of our embodied interactions, then there really is not this distinction between the body and the mind because both are working together when we all, all of us people are working together and it ends up making this, it, it really ends up imploding or rupturing this dualism between the body and mind. And so I think that all connects back to this idea of emergence, because again, what we're finding out is our brain frequencies are literally matching up with one another when we work together. And they only does that because we have these embodied experiences of working together in the world. And that totally, uh, 
collapses this idea that there is the distinction between the body and the mind. And I think that's just so important as we move forward thinking about our bodies and eventually getting to the point of how does that then change the way we think about theology? Mm. Okay, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So you're kind of saying like, I guess in mirror of the example you used with the particles, like if you were a particle and I was a particle and we came together and uh, worked together on something that created an experience, the experience isn't just you particle and me particle. It's a whole new thing, kind of like yes, exactly. particles come together to make an atom. Okay, yes, that's very exactly. cool. There's a new thing being created, right? And so if you and I are working together and our brain frequencies are starting to sync up and we really start to have this collective conscious experience, that's a new entire thing, right? And that is what's really interesting to me. Um, you know, there, there's it, actually Rob Bell has a really great presentation around this. Uh, and disclaimer, like, I think Rob Bell is really helpful in a lot of ways. I think there's valid critiques of him. But with that said, he's got this really great way of kind of describing this where, you know, the world starts out with all of these little particles. They come together, work together. They create atoms. These atoms come together and work together and create these molecules. These molecules come together and then eventually start to form things like uh, the building blocks of life. Uh, and those building blocks of life start to come together and they start to create other organisms and those organisms and so on and so forth, right? Until you get to something as complex as humanity, right? Humanity is just this uh, building blocks of all of these other things that precede us starting with particles, right? And they all at every stage create something new and then that new thing comes together and eventually creates something new. I think what's really interesting is perhaps, who knows what will happen, but perhaps if humanity works together in such a way, what's the new thing that gets created? What's the next emergent thing? Mm. Right? That's really oh. interesting. We don't know what that could be, but that is what's fascinating to me, given the fact that that seems to be the direction the world works, is that when all of these things work together, there's a new thing that gets created. I'm really interested, what's that new thing that could get created? And I'm really hoping that by us breaking down these ideas of dualism between the body and the mind, and even integrating that with how we think about our spirituality and theology, maybe we could be part of we, maybe we could be part of actually creating that new thing mm. okay i hope that new thing is not ai in a really scary way that's all i've been hearing it, about lately it, it very well maybe who knows maybe oh, my... maybe that new thing is siri maybe she's already in your pocket oh no my brain just jumped to all these places when you said that and i'm like oh my gosh all these movies i've seen no but uh in all seriousness, that is very, very cool. And it actually, it reminds me a lot about, um, I was just getting, I've been really recently into uh, learning about different religions and I was reading a lot about the different uh, sects of Judaism mm -hmm, and I was reading mm -hmm. about how in one of them, there is the concept of God is talked about more so, or less like this being or this like, power but more so god is like everything working together to create something mm -hmm. and so when you were talking about like all the particles working together to create atoms working together to create etc cetera, etc cetera, all i can think of was like oh that is literally theology because like you can make a million metaphors out of it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's just it's really cool to just look really closely 
are not really closely, really, I guess, um, from a distance of how the world, of how the world works, how humanity came to be, and how all of that, I want to say, is like poetry, which goes into your theopoetics. Mm. <laughs> that was an accidental transition. Um, but yeah, that's very, very cool. My gosh, you said that Rob Bells was the one who gave that presentation? Yeah, I, I'm fairly certain he wrote about it in a book that he wrote, I think maybe in like 2015 or so, called What, what We Talk About When We Talk About God. And he has a presentation, it's so free on YouTube, where he dives into that uh, quite a bit too. And I'm almost positive that he talks about it in that book. Um, so yeah, definitely check it out. It's very, very fascinating about kind of all of these principles that the universe seems to be working around and that our science scientists are kind of finding out around. And it's really interesting then like how that applies to the ways that we think about theology and spirituality. Mm. Uh, so yeah, check it out. Oh, that's really cool. Cause there was that whole, well, there still is the whole like science versus faith. You can't have both thing going on. And then, I, growing up, was so afraid to, like, actually look at, like, the science of the world because I was afraid it would disprove whatever faith I was taught growing up. But then once you kind of, like, go past that and get into science, you're able to kind of still see how still see how they work together. And mm -hmm. one doesn't mean the other isn't true or vice versa. So that's very cool. We'll have to check that out. Yeah. Uh, Mason, I have, like, two more questions for you. Or maybe three. We'll see how the first two go. <laughs> Is that okay? That is totally fine. Okay, my first question is, Mason, what are things that you do, whether it's in your spiritual life or your just like your social life, any kind of part of your life, what do you do to connect to your body or to kind of help yourself remember to connect to your body when you're feeling disconnected? Yeah, so a couple of things I do, especially if I'm starting to feel disconnected from my own body, which happens a lot. Actually, a couple of years ago, I was talking with this Enneagram coach and one of the things that she pointed out, and for those who are, know about the Enneagram, if you look at the diagram of the Enneagram, you know that the five and four types are kind of at the bottom of that diagram, right? And one of the things that she pointed out was, you know, knowing the triads of of the mind, the heart, and the body, she pointed out, okay, you're a four or five wing. Look at what you're the opposite from. And I'm like, oh, it looks like I'm the opposite of the body trad. So one of the things that she pointed out was when you have really profound and transformative experiences in your life, you are entering into your body in ways that you typically don't because you're on the opposite end of the diagram there. And so that was a really interesting way for me to think about that when I have a profound and transformative experience and somebody asks me about it, the thing that ends up happening is I start to describe the way that I felt in my body, which is not normally how I experience the world. So with that said, a couple of things that really ground me in my body is first off, going to hardcore punk shows. <laughs> As weird as it might it. seem, being able to dance around and being super chaotic and ridiculous with a room full of other people who more than likely don't know each other, and you're just getting sweaty and you're, you know, bumping on into one another and all of that. I, I don't know. There's just something about that experience that really grounds me in my body. 
So that's one experience. The I other is so weird, but it really is true. The other one is, especially when I'm feeling disconnected with my body, I love to go hiking and just kind of like meditating about my kind of placement within nature as I'm going on like a hike. So I just got back from the Black Hills. And so I was able to go on lots of hikes and, you know, I was getting all sweaty and getting, you know, climbing up all these hills and running out of breath. And there's just something really meditative in that experience that really grounds me to my placement within nature. And so that that's another experience of mine that really... Uh, connects me to my body. So, hardcore punk shows and <laughs> and hiking and hiking up mountains. I love that. I gotta go to some hardcore punk shows. I like. I know this is definitely not hardcore punk, but I definitely can agree with you when it comes to listening to every old Fallout Boy song <laughs> in the car. <laughs> I don't know how punk that is, you but it's punk for me. <laughs> there's something to be said about why so many people, especially when they were teenagers have all these transformative experiences when they go to Warp Tour and see a band like Fall Out Boy, right? Absolutely. There's a reason why. And I would say that there's something that actually is happening within the physicality of our bodies that is happening in those moments that changes us forever. And so, yeah, oh, yeah. I really, I, I don't think it's just something that you experience in your mind and just exists in your mind. And that's why you look back at them very, uh, profoundly it's because your body actually physically gets changed in moments like that so yeah I, I i think it's the same thing when you know when it comes to my hardcore punk shows my body is getting physically changed by those experiences and because of that i'm forever changed wow that that's very cool that's for i've never thought into it uh like that before and i can definitely get on board with that um Okay, my last question with you has nothing to do with anything else except kind of the last question now that I think about it because I'm taking an idea <laughs> from it. Um, so get ready. Would you rather all of your friends, just all of them, be the little marshmallows from Lucky Charms but okay. not know they are? They're just giant Lucky Charm marshmallows, and everyone you befriend becomes a marshmallow. Uh, nothing bad happens to them or anything. Like they're still living their life. No one else sees them as a marshmallow, but in your vision and your understanding, they are now all marshmallows. Okay. Or, and not the normal kind, the Lucky Charms kind. Right, so they're right. all different. You know what I mean? Um, or would you rather? Fallout Boy, because they are on my mind now that we talked about them, be your audience for everything that you do. They just kind of follow you around. They don't really, oh. they're not really like involved, but they're watching you. They might talk amongst themselves about things that's going on in your life. They'll, they'll give you your privacy for like showering and going to the bathroom and stuff, but everything public slash presentable that you do they're there to kind of comment and just watch. Interesting. <laughs> and I, I have to pick one? You, I mean, no, but yes, you do have wow, to pick one. Wow, I don't one. know if there's one that's preferable. Uh, I guess maybe I'll go with the latter. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it would be kind of cool, especially if people know them as Fall Out Boy. That would be kind of cool for like, like you know, Fall Out Boy to be like kind of, for whatever reason, my Your kind groupies. of like, yeah, groupies. That would be kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, maybe I'd get sick of it after a while. I think I would get sick of it 
much less than if all of my friends were Lucky Charms marshmallows. So yeah, as long as people know that it is Fallout Boy as my groupies, and not just like a bunch of guys that happen to be in Fallout Boy that and nobody but nobody knows that they are in Fallout Boy. <laughs> as long as people know that they are in Fallout Boy and that Fallout Boy is my or my groupies, then I don't know. That would be kind of cool, I guess. Oh my gosh, I'm just picturing you walking around with the group of Fallout Boy, just like just like dressed for their performance, exactly how they would look on stage, but yes. nobody knowing who they were, just following you around casually, and you're like their leader. <laughs> just like you know, every now and then, just belting out a little like "Sugar, we're going down." Like that would be oh, yeah. that'd be kind of funny. The classic, yeah, I think I would pick that too. And my, I, I, I think it actually, I should ask the question in terms of like for one year, two years, or something, because the idea of either of those things happening for the rest of our lives is just nope. So for one year, I would pick the same thing. Yeah. Um, I, also, I just like don't think my friends would be good like Lucky Charms marshmallows. Like they, they would be the worst of the Lucky Charms marshmallows. <laughs> They'd be the rejected ones. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. The they're, they're the that ones that quality control is like we're not taking those ones. Those <laughs> cannot go out in the packaging. Oh my gosh! You'll have to let them know if you were a Lucky Charms marshmallow, you would be rejected. Yeah, you're going, you're going to the Lucky Charm marshmallow pit of hell. Oh my gosh! For any of Mason's friends that may or may not listen or hear this podcast, that's for you. Yeah, and if you're wondering, actually, I think Mason, I'm like the exception. No, you're not the exception, my friend. You are the one that's going straight to the pit of hell. Well, now that we know that, now that we've we've got that confirmed we are on the same page about your friends and marshmallows and fallout boy i feel like i have all the information that i could ever need to know yep you you <laughs> you, you squeezed it all out of me i did that's the that's the most important thing that we've talked about there's this whole nothing hour. more i could ever say in the world that hasn't already been said in this interview no. Oh my gosh. Well, Mason, it's been so much fun talking with you. Where where can people find your, your work? Yeah, so you can find my website at masonmeninga.com, M-A-S-O-N-M-E-N-N-E-N-G-A.com. And uh, there you can find some of the things that I'm up to in the world. Uh, again, I podcast. Uh, it's called The People's Theology. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And I also, again, have that YouTube channel. That's just, you know, type in my name or type in youtube.com forward slash Mason Meniga. You'll be able to find some of my videos. There'll be more coming out soon. And then, uh, yeah, you can follow me on all the socials. I've got Twitter and Instagram. I'm pretty active on those. So uh, if you want to give me a little follow, uh, I would love to interact with you so uh yeah those are the ways that you can get connected with me awesome and just to clarify it's meninga meninga like meninga meninga not meninga okay not meninga to all of you who have ever mentioned mason's full name to me i don't remember who you are but there's at least two of you you owe Um, jackie a dollar (laughs) all of you yes no five dollars come on each Come one of on. you, five bucks. Inflation. Mm-hmm. That and then also Minneapolis, not yeah. Minneapolis. That's right. Yeah, there's not, there's not an extra syllable in there, Jackie. Okay, glad we have got that out there and for the world. So whoever else has those problems, now you know. Uh, Mason, thank you so much again. I will put all of that information in the description box below for everyone to go follow along and check out his YouTube videos and podcasts and all the things. He has a lot of really cool, important things to say and talk about in conversations to spark up. So thank you so much, Mason. I will see you next time I'm up in Minneapolis. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thanks, Jackie. <laughs> All right, bye. If you guys are enjoying the Unity Project podcast and you want to support me and get more involved in what I'm doing, then you can go check out my Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash JackieGTV. That is where you can support me for as little as $1 a month. Or if you'd like to learn more about my story and how I got from there to here type of thing, then you can check out my book, Finding Home. If you want to pick up a copy of that, then either send me a DM on Instagram or check out my website. All of that information, the links will be in the description box below.